Welcome back to the Revolution and Ideology podcast. I am Jared. I'm Nick. And today we are uh, reverting back to our other series called Myth is America, where we go through uh, what is commonly taught as U.S. history and deconstruct what is more likely, at least what we've learned in a K-12 system or through pop culture, um, mythology. And we deconstruct it for um, a couple of choice reasons. A, because it is uh, honestly a false understanding of history is how we've constructed our society today for all of its benefits and of course, for our purposes here as critical historian and a critical sociologist, all of its major faults. But one of the other reasons we go through uh, Myth is America is in deconstructing U.S. history, we want to bring to light um, heroes, real, quote unquote, American heroes of the past that have been overlooked. Uh, their faces are not carved into mountains or appearing on our currency or anything along those lines. And yet some might argue they embody a revolutionary or innovative spirit better than those that we have been told to uh, uh, to be that have become our icons or that we've been told to worship or whatever. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Nick? No, yeah, I fully agree. I think that we both became interested in doing this sort of mini series to tell histories that have been traditionally subjugated that, like you said, aren't really taught in our traditional K through twelve American history. Uh, thus the title myth is America essentially deconstructing the myth that is the traditional historical narrative of the country right and again it is it's meant to be critical of of US history and perhaps even the United States to an extent but also then provide an alternative um, uh, an alternative history that presents individuals or events or actions that actually do embody some of the ideals that we say we do. Like there's definitely some hypocrisy in the way history is presented, especially when we omit certain events, ideas, uh, create half-truths, or and sometimes manufacture entire events. But anyway, that's, that's Myth is America in a nutshell. And since it's been so long um, since we've done an episode on Myth is America, we felt compelled to probably explain a little bit uh, what myth is America presents. It is meant to challenge the ethically constitutive story of the United States in a nutshell. Okay. One of those aforementioned revolutionary icons or individuals that is, to be blunt, just an American badass is a man named Tecumseh. That's not necessarily his given name uh, or his birth name, but that ended up being his given name. Properly pronounced, to the best of my knowledge, in uh, the indigenous language of Shawnee, it's Tecumseh. I, hopefully I did that okay. I'll probably revert back to my whatever Anglo pronunciation, um, since it's just more comfortable coming off of my tongue. Um, but Tecumseh translates um, roughly as shooting star, which, again, that's, that's, that, that's a pretty good title for a revolutionary <laughs> leader. He lived between 1768 and 1813. Um, what are your thoughts before we dig into this on Tecumseh? Nick said he, he, he didn't learn a whole lot about Tecumseh, but, but I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts are? Why maybe this individual, this amazing individual was left out of your, your past historical, um, um, education? Yeah. Before we started recording, I admitted to Jared that I don't know more about Tecumseh than probably the average American, like middle schooler, uh, maybe even less than that. I don't even know how much he's taught, if at all. Um, all that I do know is that he was... I mean, I view him as a revolutionary fighter against basically the American colonial project. Yeah. And uh, another translation of his name kind of presents like his his iconographic place in Shawnee and, and not just Shawnee, all of indigenous history. It is Panther. He's the Panther across the sky. 
um, is another like rough translation of his name. He was born in what we would now call um, this in Ohio. Um, and he's likely of a mixed indigenous heritage, part Muscogee Creek or Muscogee Creek, part Cherokee, part Shawnee. It's kind of hard to track um, his actual bloodline as the Creek Nation um, and all of its other derivatives and subclans was matrilineal, whereas the uh, nation that Tecumseh spent most of his life in, the Shawnee, were patrilineal. So like you have a matrilineal society, which our listeners should at least be aware of. We have an entire video on our YouTube channel dedicated to what matrilineal means. Um, but that's who the Creek were. But when Tecumseh uh, eventually ended up with, as a child, with the Shawnee, they're a patrilineal tribe. So the bloodline was a little bit hard to follow. And 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 I'm kind of done talking about the bloodline here because the bloodline for indigenous communities was not nearly as important as it would be for Eurocentric or Americentric societies to prove our, our purity or whatever for our status. Um, but it is important for me to note that he is likely of mixed indigenous heritage. Any thoughts on that or does it matter? Do you uh, I think it's kind of inconsequential. I Yeah. Okay. Um. The story is even, or his original story, is complicated even more by the Adonisani move to the Ohio Valley. And for those of you that don't know who the Adonisani is, it translates roughly as the whole house. But they're more famously known by their French, na French name, the Iroquois. The Iroquois uh, essentially engaged in the Beaver Wars and the French and Indian War and so on and so forth with the, the French and the British um, but they also engaged in these economic wars called beaver wars because of the forced dependency of the economy brought by the colonists. One of the things that the Iroquois eventually resorted to was waging war for economic reasons, which is something they never did before colonists showed up. But because, again, of the dependency of the new system brought on by the Dutch, the French, the British, etc., they end up just really needing pelts so that they can get uh, the new items that they need. They, they can exchange them for metal, uh, wampum, or weapons. Anyway, the reason this is important is that meant the Iroquois became a little bit more aggressive and would then fight other indigenous tribes for access to pelts. The reason this is important is some of those tribes were further west, like the Shawnee, like the Huron, like these other groups, further kind of complicating the purity of any, any First Nation nationality. Also important is as the colonists continue to push the Iroquois and, other, uh, and some other groups that were Algonquin speaking, speaking further west from the East Coast, they poured into the Ohio Valley as well. And so like this Ohio Valley is kind of like this mismatched uh, area of people that are migrating. Many of them are refugees. Some of them are indigenous to that region. But long story short, it is, it's under constant crisis. And that's where Tecumseh is born. He's born into crisis. I, I took a long time to explain that, but he's born into crisis. I really like the, your use of the term refugee there, because I think this obviously gets glossed over so oftentimes when we're talking about indigenous people's history in the Americas that they weren't just moving, like in this example, to the Ohio Valley because they thought it would be a cool place to vacation. Like they were being uprooted out of their territories that they had lived in for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah, I mean, it's a I big mean, deal. And it even is. uprooted is like a euphemism, right? They're being slaughtered. Let's right. Just say yeah. what in a is. prior episode, we read George Washington's direct quote to uh, General Sullivan about what he should do with the Iroquois League of Peace and Power. And it was essentially like to it, it was ethnic cleansing. He basically ordered Sullivan to ethnically cleanse the Iroquois. 
Um, okay, back to the story. Um, Tecumseh's dad ended up being killed by white colonists in 1774 after the British. 1774, if you're doing the map at home, technically it's still British colonies. Uh, independence was not declared for another two years later. He's killed by whites in 1774 after the British violate a treaty. Treaty violation is a common thing that takes place in um, colonial uh, projects, and it becomes something that the United States would go on to adopt. In fact, to the best of my knowledge, and someone can correct me in the comments if I'm wrong, but the United States has violated every treaty it has ever signed um, with the First Nations in one way or another, whether we're talking about actual territory, whether we're talking about promised reservations, whether we're talking about water rights, every treaty has been violated. Uh, what do you think, Nick? I'm kind of chuckling inside thinking of like, if there's one thing that the U.S. government has done consistently that should be the history of the country, it's violating the promises it made to the indigenous people. Like that's the one thing that's constant. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it, it, it is. It is a hallmark of American history is is violating treaties uh, against First Nations. Okay. Chicxicca is Tecumseh's older brother, and he's the one that ends up raising Tecumseh because his father uh, was killed. And like so I said, the, Sh the Shawnee Tecumseh are a six When his dad gets killed, is that right? Am I doing that years correctly? He's six years old? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, you... Um, Back to what I said, the Shawnee are a patrilineal society. So the father-ish figure is a little bit more important in a Shawnee society than it would have been in a Creek or an Iroquois society. Those were both matrilineal. So in this case, his older brother, Chicxicca, steps in and helps raise uh, Tecumseh. The war for independence in the United States, which we've done a couple of episodes on, breaks out while Tecumseh is a child. Obviously, it breaks out when he turns eight. The Shawnee nation, his nation that he's now living among, chose the lesser of the two evils in this case. And and uh, there's more than two evils. The, the fight is actually more than just the uh, American colonists against the British. We know the French show up. Again, we've done entire episodes on this. But, but for our purposes here, the Shawnee chose the lesser of evils. And in this case, it is the British. That coming out of my mouth makes me want to choke. Because the British, as as we've talked about on this this podcast numerous times in their colonial projects, were arguably the most aggressive, the most invasive of any of the other colonizers. And that's saying something when you're competing the, with the French and the Dutch and the Spanish and whoever else of the world that the British are the most aggressive and militant in their colonial endeavors. And yet, and yet, the Shawnee choose the British over the Americans. What does that mean the Americans are going to be? What are your yeah, thoughts? They're, they're atrocious, obviously. They're ridiculous. Okay. He is raised in a town that I can never properly pronounce, uh, Chilicate. Uh, it's, 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 it's it, whatever. I, I cannot pronounce it. My apologies to all listeners. Um, but he's raised in this village until a new Kentucky militia, it is named the Kentucky militia, enters into, um, uh, into this village and, and just lays, lays it to the ground, destroys it, burns it. And he flees to another town called Kispoko. Again, this is a ch as a child. This is what he's being raised in, ages 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. But George Rogers Clark destroyed that village too in 1780. And, and now we're talking about like American aggression because they are seeing the Shawnee as an enemy combatant because they, for whatever reason, chose the British side. Because the British, for at least a brief period of time, were willing to to hold up treaties. In fact, back in our, our, our War for Independence episode, we talk about one of the things that um, King George III had decreed was the Proclamation of 1763, basically saying, 
don't cross into Native American territory because we can't afford to protect you. It costs so much. And if you do that, we're probably going to have to pay for it. And we, as we all know, some of that payment came back in the form of taxes that Americans got super pissed off about. But regardless, before that even happened, he said, don't go to this territory because it costs a lot of money to keep you safe. And of course, the Americans did so. Um, anyway, by 1780, that's 17 years later, the Americans are at war with England and they are proceeding into this territory. After George Roger Clark, George Rogers Clark and his men destroy his second village, Kispoko, in 1780, he's forced to flee again as a refugee to another town called Stand Sandingstone. Clark shows up there again in 1782. Um, and a quote from the era from a man named Wallace says, a fire spreading over the hill and valley consumed the race of dark souls. That's like the, that's a colonial mindset. But essentially, this is how Clark left these villages. He left them as a quote, unquote, a fire spreading over the hill and valley consuming the race of dark souls. What do you think of that quote by Wallace? I think, I mean, it just gives us an insight into the atrocities being committed, obviously at the expense of the indigenous people by the whites at the time. By 1783, at the age of 15 now, he began attacking settler flatboats used to colonize um, the Ohio River that were coming down from Pennsylvania. Again, so by 15, he's got no choice. He's old enough, he's probably strong enough that he will become a resistance fighter, resisting the colonial measures of the United States. Um, at the age of 15, think about this, already fa attacking settler flatboats because he has no choice. He is literally watching the wholesale ethnic cleansing and destruction of his homeland over and over again. He's forced to move like three different times before he's 15. Imagine growing up like that. What do you think, Nick? I think it's really hard for like, especially white privileged Americans to put themselves in the mindset of like what that must have been like. We try to think like, well... Like, this 15-year-old kid is attacking these settlers. They're just out trying to, like, make a life for themselves. But, like, no, absolutely not. You have to understand that all white people are terrible people. If you're looking at it from the perspective of the indigenous peoples that are experiencing this at the time. There's Very no, like, strong. oh, that's a good white person. <laughs> and, like, that's a bad white person. And, like, we'll let these people through because they're just trying to make a life for themselves. They're coming in and taking your land. There's no good or bad or right or wrong, like... That's it. And I, I don't know how like people cannot put themselves in their, their their shoes and like understand that that's what the perspective would have been. One of the first major wars that the United States engaged in that nobody learns about in their history classes because we don't want to call it like we, you know, we, we want the good wars, the World War Ones or Twos or whatever. Um, But this is a real war. This is an actual war by the United States against a foreign power. And the United States is the aggressor. They start this war. It is called the Northwest Indian War, and it's led by, of course, um, Henry Knox, uh, and it's against the Wabash Confederacy. That's another confederacy of uh, indigenous peoples um, and their refugees that they had adopted during their formative years. Again, real quick, before I even get into this, the Northwest Indian War, just thinking about a society obsessed with war um, like the United States is. Again, we, we learn about the War for Independence. We learn about the Civil War. We learn about World War I and World War II, and it kind of tails off there. If you're lucky, you get a little Vietnam War, but that's not popular because the United States was, again, the aggressive belligerent and they lost. Um, but regardless, um, how do so many, so many of these American wars fall off 
a a narrative that honestly glorifies war like almost no other culture currently or even maybe before it. And that's saying something because, you know, we got like Roman empires and British empires and stuff like that. The Northwest Indian War is one of those wars that Americans never even learn about. What do you think, Nick? Why, how does this get left out of the American narrative? I actually think that so much from this very specific period other than like the Revolutionary War for Independence and like the Constitutional Convention, et cetera. But like what's going on, I was about to use the term frontier and then I would have like thrown over my mouth a little bit. What's going on like to the West during this time, I think it's just glossed over wholesale because it is the story of genocide and colonization and the attempted eradication of the indigenous people that were already here. So it's no surprise that this war too is left out. For Tecumseh, as this war is launched by the United States, again, led by by um, uh, the Secretary of War, Knox, uh, against the Wabash Confederacy, he ends up um, going off to train um, a little bit further south with a group of um, militant, I can't believe I'm using this word, insurgent and non-assimilated Cherokee called the Chickamauga. This is important because a lot of the Cherokee Nation, and I don't know how to say this lightly, a lot of them did try to assimilate in ways to like Anglo culture in those years. Some of them even actually held slaves, but there were also a a group of Cherokee, a lot of Cherokee that chose not to assimilate and to continue to fight for their way of life against the Anglo or the American way of life. And the Chickamauga are some of those Cherokee. He went to go train with them. These are some badass revolutionary fighters. He ends up broke, breaking his leg during this time period, and he kind of limped for like the rest of his life, but he broke his leg during during this training. He actually fell, um, and he stayed in he stayed down there with these uh, Chickamauga for two years um, with the badass heroic warrior named Dragging Canoe. Dragging Canoe. I'm not going to go through his history, but he is, a, he is like a badass, like just Cherokee warrior that is willing to just lay everything on the line to protect like his people, his way of life, all of those types of things. He trains with him. That's also so again, a dope name. Dragging Canoe. I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Chicksicka, his brother that raised him ends up being killed in Tennessee in 1792. So he's lost his dad. He's lost his brother. He's lost three villages. He's seeing this unrelenting war uh, by the United States as it continues to push further West. Um, and, and he just, it's 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 devastating. He ends up fighting at a at a battle that we actually did in a prior episode. I actually forget which episode it is, but we talked about the Battle of Fallen Timbers in 1794, um, and that is a quote unquote U.S. victory over uh, indigenous forces. But he refused. He was at that battle, but he refused to sign the quote unquote treaty that was signed afterwards. And I say quote unquote treaty. It's a real treaty. It's called the Treaty of Greenville. It is a real. Um, it is a real treaty, um, but I say, quote unquote, because the United States went on, they signed the treaty and then violate it a few years later. So it's like, it's, it's the United States comes up with this treaty. Everybody's happy for a few years until colonists want more shit. Again, Americans want more and more and more. It's never enough. So they end up violating this treaty later. Tecumseh never even signed it. So, um, during this time period, though, we have another um, uh, member of Tecumseh's family that rises to prominence, maybe even more so than Tecumseh for a little bit. It is his younger brother, uh, a man named Lala Withika. He eventually goes on to become the very famous um, indigenous prophet named Tenskwatawa, but his, his, his birth name is Lala Withika. 
Lala was um, somewhat of a troubled youth. He was kind of an uncoordinated warrior. He wasn't known for having a lot of skill in any one capacity. Um, he even lost uh, his eye uh, when he, he shot it out with an arrow, basically. He, it was an accident as a kid. So he had one eye for most of his life. He shot and, it out himself? Yeah, that's that's the best recollection I have. I've, I've seen a couple huh. of different versions of the story. Um, and And essentially, that's just kind of what we're going with here is he, he had an accident. I'm not sure how you can shoot a bow out. Uh, maybe he didn't shoot it out. Maybe he fell on it. Maybe he was playing with it, but, but he shot it, but his eye, he lost his eye due to an accident with an arrow. He goes on in his teenage and young adult years to, um, become, um, an alcoholic. Uh, I, I, that's all I'm going to say. He becomes an alcoholic. Keep in mind, this was not, um, due to any of well here's the thing this is one of those things that's often overlooked in u.s history but people are kind of aware of it alcoholism among indigenous peoples and what we do now in the modern day is tend to blame the indigenous peoples the for themselves whatever you see on a reservation or something we then transfer that blame to the individual which is a wonderful thing that we do in the united states we're like rugged individualism um you know take all of your cool work hard work and like send that up to the top of the quote-unquote pyramid but if anything bad happens it's because of your own individual shortcomings well this is another example of that um but back at that time keep in mind and we learned this at the battle of fallen timbers and other later treaties that alcohol was actually promoted by the United States in these communities. It was used to create dependency by the United States, and not even just by the United States, by the French, British, and Dutch before them, as a coping mechanism. So you get these individuals hooked on this drug, and it is a drug. You get them hooked on this drug, and it creates a dependency. Alcoholism can be depend. You, you become dependent on this. It is a drug. Not only is it a drug, but we also have to keep in mind that sometimes um, hallucinogenic drug use was also used by indigenous communities before white people showed up as a way to achieve a different plane of like understanding. And so alcohol could be seen as a gateway there. And then the third thing that we have to think about regarding alcoholism among indigenous communities at this time was it wasn't just economic dependency that the colonizers were seeking to create for individuals. And this is what's overlooked in almost every study I've looked at. It can be used as a coping mechanism for lack of a better term, the fucking apocalypse, because for these groups of people, that is what they're witnessing. And if you are seeing like just this unchecked wholesale destruction of everything you've ever known, Within a few decades, everything you've ever known, this is literally the apocalypse. We can see how some individuals might fall prey to uh, this type of coping mechanism. In fact, we have alcoholism in these developed nations today in the United States or in the UK or in France. It is wildly rampant, and it's a coping mechanism for people that are even assimilated into this culture. So we can see how for others, when faced with the apocalypse, it also becomes a coping mechanism. What are your Todd, thoughts? I just read, I don't want to really date this episode, but I just read an incredible article about out. for the listeners that are listening to this sometime in the future we're recording this during the time of the COVID-19 crisis in the United States and I read this article that was talking about how liquor stores qualify as essential businesses and the, basically like you would think of that like how is that possible but basically it said that alcoholism is so rampant in our country that if the liquor stores were to close down that all of the like withdrawal from alcohol that people like just a majority of the population would experience would create a health crisis like on its own. 
So liquor stores qualify as essential businesses because it's so rampant throughout the United States to this day, which is just so depressing. I mean, just think about all the ways that one might cope with, again, the end of your world, for lack of a better term. Let's mm -hmm. say tomorrow uh, aliens from a foreign planet show up and they're technologically whatever, more advanced or whatever, but they're also less advanced philosophically and psychologically and sociologically, which is why they feel like they need to take everybody else's crap. And they start taking all of our crap and destroying us and killing us and finding all kinds of different, both militant and political um, and economic ways to basically like dispossess us of everything. How might you cope? Would you, I don't know, uh, whatever, smoke marijuana? Would you, would you drink? Would you play video games? Would you like hide in your basement? How might you cope? It's very yes, similar. all of the above. Yeah, like, <laughs> I don't know, like try and just ignore it. La, la, la. I mean, COVID, I guess, is a, is a decent example, even though we're dating this episode a little bit. People, a lot of people are, are struggling even with this. And, and I shouldn't say even with this, that kind of diminishes the, the, what's going on. But regardless, it's, it's not the apocalypse that uh, Lala Withica was facing. Um, no, I really and, like your use of this term in this context when we use it in class and so on, because we like to, both of us are interested in like apocalyptic narratives and what that says about our current society. And like you frequently say in class, like we don't have to imagine what an apocalypse would be like. We just have to look at indigenous peoples when the white people showed up because that's what it was. It was an apocalypse. Absolutely. Their entire, not only was did an attempt to wipe out their entire population, but to completely destroy their way of life and completely take control of everything that they had known for thousands of years. It's exactly what it was. Compounding, to get back to the story, combat, compounding Lala Withika, Lala's like childhood and then going into adulthood and engagement with alcoholism and stuff. Missionaries, uh, obviously of various different Christian denominations um, throughout the years, some Catholic, some Protestant, different different types of Catholics, uh, mostly Jesuit from the French, or if somehow you came into contact with the Spanish, you'd be looking at Franciscans or Dominicans, different versions of Protestantism. Anyway, regardless, missionaries would show up in a lot of these like refugee camps, which is what they essentially became. Um, and they would provide, try and provide relief from alcoholism. So in a way, their hearts were kind of in the right place, but rather they would replace the alcoholism with another ism. In this case, their religious ism, in this case, their brand of Christianity, and there were different types, right? And so the reason I mention this is Lala Withika would have ha had access to some of this missionary information. And keep in mind, I already mentioned he's going to become a prophet of sorts. So this is where where he might have had access to this information is the missionaries that would come to these refugee camps and, and essentially try and save souls. Um, so that's important. In 1805, uh, he was drunk and he fell down sick um, from alcoholism or alcohol sickness or whatever. And he, he basically went unconscious. He, but while he was unconscious, he had a vision. He had a dream. And again, this is important for anyone that knows like the history of, of dream-like understanding of the world. During hard apocalyptic times, we've seen numerous prophets in history um, have dreams or visions or altered states of, of understanding. Um, you know, Moses talked to a burning bush or the prophet Muhammad went out to the caves and was embraced by the angel Gabriel or Jesus spent 40 days in the desert or Zoroaster went up on the mountains and there were hallucinogens. Maybe he took them, maybe he didn't. But regardless, our episodes, a lot of our episodes in, in, in both Myth is America and 
uh, revolution and ideology have dealt with this idea of either going out into nature or taking some drugs or whatever and having a vision, a vision of what is to come become next, come next. How are we going to fix the situation? Um, we've talked about it over and over again, but I still want Nick's like input, like this idea of, in this case, maybe not traveling out to nature. He already lives in nature, but getting high or drunk or whatever, falling unconscious, and then having this vision of the future. What are your thoughts? I think there's a couple of ways to look at this. I mean, like you said, because it's so common in these stories. And I think it hinges on whether or not you believe that it actually happens, right? Like the people are looking for someone to help them, to guide them through this period in their history, right? Regardless of what group we're talking about at the time. So they're just looking for someone to do something, right? So when the prophet comes and says, I've had this vision that is supernatural in some way, whatever the way that is, depending on the culture, and this is what... I experienced in this vision, and this is what will guide us through this period. I think the people are really, really susceptible to that happening. Yeah. Right? I think that the prophets themselves either are opportunists who realize this and say, Hey, I'm going to make up that I had this vision and then like tell my people and they'll follow me. But I think more likely is probably that they themselves too are also susceptible to believing that they have received a vision because of what's going on at the time period as well. Or if you want to believe it, they are susceptible to actually receiving the vision, however you want to believe or not believe whether it's real. In his vision, the master of life is what he is, what it's called in Shawnee tradition. The master of life told uh, all indigenous, all Native Americans or American Indians, whatever, we, whatever you prefer, to give up all white customs and products. So give up all the white customs, give up their religions that they've tried to bring, give up products, which for him means alcohol um, or guns, dependence on guns, dependence on iron cookware, dependence on glass beads, dependent. These are all the master of life basically in this vision told Lala Wythika that these are the worst sins committed by the people. And one of the reasons why they are experiencing this this apocalyptic um, end. And so to to basically do not assimilate in any way, shape, or form. This is very controversial at the time because there are indigenous leaders um, that do feel like maybe that some sort of assimilation or continuing to sign these treaties, eventually, yeah, the white people will stop. They'll just stop. Eventually, one of them will be a, a man or woman of their word, and, and they'll just stop. So this is actually very controversial, even among his own people, that there should be no engagement with anything white. Um, and this is, again, it is also important in this vision that all nations must create a grandiose peace pact. So this would not be the first time that indigenous communities have sought to go international. Like when I say international, not like what you, what listeners might think like different countries, but for them, they're all different nations international to create alliance against colonialism. Uh, uh, Medicom, better known as King Philip um, of the uh, Wampanoag was able to accomplish this a little bit all the way back in the, uh, uh, what was that shit? God, I don't even have a date. King Philip's war. Holy crap. Anyway. Uh, late 1600s, if I had to guess, maybe, or yeah, whatever. Regardless, Medicom was able to accomplish, Pontiac was able to accomplish this a little bit during the War for Independence. So this is not the first time that there's been this like cross-national seeking of creating an alliance because they he understood that it would take all nations to withstand the white aggressors. 
And if they all united, the master of life would help them drive the white colonists away. His name was then changed to what we're going to call him from now on, Tenskwatawa, which means the open door. And he becomes more popularly known among the colonists as the prophet. They, they also recognize his, his message and see it as somewhat dangerous. Um, now, regardless of whether he had a real vision or not, as far as a strategy is concerned, this is a great strategy. If you don't want to fall into dependency or continue to get burned by the fake promises of the colonists, stop engaging altogether. Like just this is this is like what we would call like a general like boycott of every, every, everything white. And this is how you make change. What do you think for social change? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a, one of the strategies. Um I think we know that it doesn't end up working for the indigenous peoples, but it's definitely a possibility. Um, his fame, as his stories began to spread from Ohio, um, both north, south, west as well, um, his fame attracts many followers. And a rivalry develops in his own people because another one of the other Shawnee uh, leaders was a, 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 a man named Blackhoof. And he had advised peace with the United States and trying to maybe not assimilate, but live like concurrently with them, live like alongside the white people while still keeping a little bit of their Shawnee um, identity. And there is a rival. And so basically you have like this duality, this fracturing of the Shawnee nation a little bit as to which strategy uh, different individuals sought to basically stave off their, the, the, the destruction being wrought by the colonial project. Um, this is important because again, like, you know, some people are going, some people think when I talk about like leadership and I'm refusing to use this word chief, it's not like a real thing. That's usually a manufactured identity by the colonials so that they can negotiate with only one individual in most first nations decisions, political, economic, they are collectively, um, decided upon. And there are representatives, um, often that, that, that people will follow with those decisions because they make the best argument or they've shown the best qualities in whatever regard. But these are not permanent course of leaders like European sovereigns or, or even like, you know, legislators in, in the Senate or the parliament or anything along those lines. These people basically just have consensus. People will just follow them if they think they're doing good things. If they stop doing good things, then individuals can just up and start following another guy. Like that's it's it's called the natural democracy. We also have a video on this YouTube channel or on our YouTube channel that kind of goes through in about five minutes what natural democracy is among indigenous nations. This is what I'm talking about. So it's not like Black Hoof is like this one chief and all the Shawnee have to do what he says. That's just not how the Shawnee or most First Nations work. Um, anyway, during this time, Tecumseh comes back from his experience um, traveling with the uh, uh, Chickamauga Cherokee. In 1808, Tecumseh and Tenskwatawa move into Miami territory. And when I say Miami, I am not talking Florida. I am talking the Miami nation, which is also in Ohio. Um, and they establish a new village called Prophetstown. Now, this is also controversial because Tecumseh and the prophet are basically Shawnee, even though like the bloodline's complicated, like I said. But they're coming in as refugees into Miami territory. And they're basically just set up shop without really engaging in 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 how they're going to work with the Miami. So Little Turtle was one of the like leaders of the Miami, and he wasn't thrilled about the setting up of Prophetstown. 
Little Turtle has a very rich history, and I brought him up in a in a in a, in a prior episode of resistance against um, the uh, the American advances. Um, but he had calmed down a little bit now in his later years in terms of like resistance fighter, and he was not necessarily thrilled about like not just like the ceding of some of his territory to these refugees, but perhaps attracting American attention to to the Miami uh, nation. Any commentary on this like history right now, Nick? No, I don't think so. Okay. Um, Tecumseh's leadership, his acumen, um, combined with the prophet's vision attracted thousands of Algonquin speaking, um, indigenous people. Algonquin is not a tribe. It is a language and numerous nations spoke some variant of Algonquin. So when I say Algonquin speakers, I'm, I'm the, I'm, there's a whole bunch of different people from different nations showing up in prophet's town to hear the prophet talk and learn from Tecumseh about how to be a good leader, how to resist, etc. They They basically work together. The prophet is like, I don't even want to make this like whatever. He's kind of like the hype man, I guess, that is like just getting and and <laughs> I don't want to make the flavor flag. Yeah, he's Chuck the flavor flag. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but but yeah, like whatever. It is the uh, it is an intertribal religious stronghold that ends up in the west uh, or in the west in Indiana. Um, Essentially, it's about like 3,000 people in this town, which is a pretty good sized town for like, again, a, 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 you know, a 19th, early 19th century refugee camp, basically. Um, and keep in mind, Indiana, Indiana, like think about that name. They're in Indiana. It is named literally be, for being a territory for Native Americans. So during one of the past treaties or a series of the past treaties, this territory was basically given to indigenous, given, like you, like you can give people their land back, like it's ridiculous, but whatever. This people was basically reserved for Native Americans by the, by the United States. And let me ask our listeners now, how many indigenous people control Indiana? Like it's, uh, anyway. Um, okay. Meanwhile, we were going to be introduced real briefly to a uh, an American man. His name is William Henry Harrison. This ethnic cleanser, uh, I it, awful. Eventually, when the United States decides I, Indiana is not going to be just for Native Americans, he, they make they make it kind of a territory, and he becomes the governor of Indiana, and he began to pressure indigenous leaders that he knew he could pressure for the sale of more land in 1809. He started long negotiations with the Lenape, Kickapoo, Miami, and Potawatomi nations, which led to the Treaty of Fort Wayne. Fort Wayne, Indiana, still to this day. Uh, gross place. <laughs> it is. I mean, the whole part of Midwest right there is like the armpit of America. Um, anyway, just okay. offended all of our listeners in Fort Wayne. Yeah, I'm sure we have like none. Okay. Um, Anyway, they uh, he goes on to violate and overwrite the Treaty of Greenville. So I told you back in 1794, there's this Treaty of Greenville. Well, here we are in 1808. What is that, 14 years? No, it's more than that. Uh, I can't do math. Yeah, it is 14 years. Yeah, 14 years. They overwrite the, the, the Treaty of Greenville, and 3 million acres are ceded to the United States in Indiana. Tecumseh is furious. Um, he echoes all of the Native American revolutionary leaders of the past. Blue Jacket, Joseph Brandt, who I forgot to bring up earlier, but I mentioned him in the War for Independence episode. And, and even Pontiac, he echoes their like thoughts that the indigenous, indigenous land held by all nations, 
Indigenous land is held by all nations and none can be sold without the consent of all. Now, this quote is attributed to numerous other leaders. That's why I brought up other names. No source wants to give credit to any one indigenous. So if you look up, did Tecumseh say this? You'll find yes. Did Blue Jacket say this? Yes. Did Joseph Brandt say this? Yes. Does not matter. The, the sentiment is the same. Indigenous land is held by all nations and none of it can be sold without con the consent of all of them. That's the natural democracy. What do you think of that? It also demonstrates their relationship to the land where it's much different than like the concept of private property and individual ownership that is coming from the colonizers. By 1810, Tecumseh has gathered more warriors and they go to meet with William Henry Harrison uh, in Vincennes, uh, Indiana, and they demand to nullify the treaty. He, of course, like rejects this. Um, and basically says it, it, there's lots of like going back and forth. There's letters written, especially by Harrison on this topic. I'm not going to go through the letters right now, but he basically asserts the idea that this is technically Miami land and the Miami can sell because all different nations are separate and have separate relations with the United States. Listeners at home, this is clearly borrowed from the British, this is what we call divide and rule. All colonial projects are based on divide and rule. William Henry Harrison, and he's not even that smart, but like the, 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 the ideology he operates under is that if we divide all of these people, it's much easier to conquer and rule over them rather than them have unification and fight us back. And by dealing with each nation individually, Miami or Potawatomi or whoever, we know that they will, we will fracture them slowly but surely. Divide and rule. The meeting itself almost led to the destruction of Vincennes. In fact, I, I don't know. Again, we can rewrite history or an alternative history if Tecumseh and his warriors probably could have just taken it at that moment in time instead of meeting with him. Um, but calmer um, leaders that were among Tecumseh's men advised peace for now. Now, because let me be blunt. Tecumseh was hot and bothered and he was ready to lay Vincennes flat. And he could have. But calmer, calmer warriors among him advised, let's just see how this plays out and keep it peaceful for now. This action got the attention of the then sitting United States president, James Madison. And we've spent a lot of time in this podcast talking about various James Madison exploits dating back to the, the, uh, uh, the war for independence and the constitutional conventions and stuff. So he needs no introduction here. Uh, James Madison now is president, though, and uh, he's the fourth president. He says the safety of the persons and property of this frontier can never be effectually secured, but by the breaking up of the combination formed by the Shawnee prophet of the Wabash. I will repeat this verbatim. James Madison, the safety of the persons and property and property. Nick just emphasized this. White people have this weird infatuation with their property. It's freaking ridiculous. Like it's somehow like, again, we have people and we have property like they're on the same plane of value. Like how ludicrous is that? But regardless, the safety of the persons and property of this frontier can never be effectually secured, but by the breaking up of the combination formed by the Shawnee prophet of the Wabash. So in this case, Tenskwatawa has gotten the attention of the president of the United States. Thoughts? Yeah, the fact that this is not included in. The historical narrative is just, I mean, it doesn't shock me, obviously, but it's just ridiculous. A pan-Indian campaign of 1811 
basically travels up and down the frontier looking to recruit a mass resistance movement, and it is led by Tecumseh. He is going to try and take the prophet's words and make them reality. He is going to unite up and down the border-ish uh, uh, between the First Nations and the United States, try and unite all First Nations. And he goes on this campaign in 1811, basically riding up and down the, and Nick almost choked on the word, frontier, um, basically trying to unite all of these groups. Now, he goes uh, of note to visit the quote-unquote five civilized tribes. We'll talk about them in a future episode in a little bit more depth. They are called the five civilized tribes, not because they dubbed themselves that, but because English, Englishmen, Spaniards, and later on Americans had assimilated parts of these tribes, and, and I'd mentioned the Cherokee as one example, to in some ways act white, use currency in extreme cases like some Cherokee or some Creek even hold slaves themselves. Like they had uh, many adopted white names, many adopted Christianity as like their, their, their religion. They had become quote unquote civilized in terms of the colonial endeavor, which is ironic that eventually they were never going to still be accepted by the white culture. For those of you that know where we're going with this, eventually it is these five tribes that end up being for, on the forced march called the trail of tears. Uh, so even, even assimilating a little bit was never going to be enough. But regardless, back in 1811, that is the path some of them chose. Tecumseh goes to try and recruit them, and they it basically they're, they're, he basically says, you can either choose like whatever to fight back, or you could choose outright assimilation. But you can't like you can't have both. You can't be wish washy on this. A few militant factions of these tribes did join him. The reason that's important is because when Andrew Jackson shows up later to actually, well, he doesn't personally show. Well, actually, he kind of does. But anyway. Um, but when the Trail of Tears begins, one of the things, reasons he cites for basically ethnically cleansing the American South of these tribes is that they didn't kill Tecumseh when he came to recruit them. Like, he remembered that. Like, it's it's absolutely ludicrous. Of note, um, the Red Sticks Creek, that is one faction of the, uh, uh, of the Creek people, of the Creek Nation, the Red Sticks faction launches a new set of wars against the colonists. They are better known as the Creek Wars, another set of wars that most Americans are completely unaware ever took place. Um, and, and of course, when, when, when Tecumseh goes on this like recruiting mission, there are different quotes attributed to him. Here's one of the more famous. And again, you know, we don't know how accurate they are, but this is one of them. This is what he had to say when he's trying to recruit these five nations. He says, where today are the Pequot? Where are the Narragansett? Where are the Mohegan, the Poconocet, and other powerful tribes of our people? They have vanished before the avarice and oppression of white man, of the white man. As snow before the summer sun, sleep not longer, O Choctaw and Chickasaw. Will not the bones of our dead be plowed up and their graves turned into plowed fields? What's he saying there? What's Tecumseh saying in this recruiting to the, the, the five uh, civilized, civilized nations? I mean, he's saying that the... The other tribes literally don't even exist anymore because of the, I like the word avarice there, like the greed and this just insatiability of the white man. Another great source um, on this, if you want like further reading or for those of you that are looking for primary sources, I'm not going to go through it right now, but for like a more complete and better version of Tecumseh's like charisma and like ability to, to speak to the people, his speak to the Osages is like, like it's literally called like search that whatever primary source Tecumseh's speech to the Osages. It is like 
just straight fiery like rhetoric. I mean, I I don't know if we should. I mean, do 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 we want to look at any of that now? I don't know if we have time. Um, but it is it is a great just like fiery oration of everything that's taking place at this moment in time. Um, the Battle of Tippecanoe breaks out, and I'm sure some listeners are at least aware of that name. It's like Tippecanoe is like a just it's just a famous word, and it refers back to this battle. Um. While Tecumseh was gone, so Tecumseh's gone on like recruiting like the five civilized tribes. Clearly, as I just mentioned in that primary source, he's trying to re, uh, recruit the Osages. Um, while he's gone, William Henry Harrison sees this as an opportunity. He knows Tecumseh's gone, and he knows it's just Tenskwatawa hanging out back in Prophetstown. And Harrison is going to push his advantage. He knows Tenskwatawa is popular because he's like a good storyteller and he's got great vision for the future, but he knows Tecumseh is like the the leader. Like he's the one that that people and and that people will follow into battle or for any other, any other reason. Tenskwatawa was armed at this time. Prophetstown is armed, and this is interesting. Any any guesses on who formally arms Prophetstown, Nick, since you don't know the story? Nope. The British. Why would the British arm Prophetstown? We're in the 1800s. They lost the war for independence. What do you think's going on? Yeah, that's weird. They think somehow they're going to fight against the Americans? I don't know. The British are still in Canada, of course, back to the Treaty of Paris in 1783. And they also see American expansionist aggression perhaps threatening parts of southern Canada, some of their territory there as well, and perhaps some of their Caribbean holdings as the Americans had seemed aggressive going south. They, they, they were going into Spanish Florida. So, yeah, this was a way for the British to maybe protect some of their interests. Um Moreover, it's not the first time the British had promised to help um, indigenous communities fighting the United States. We we can relate back to like again like the the, the Mohawk and Joseph Brandt. He even became a British officer. Um, so the British had often used indigenous peoples, which is super weird, to fight worse colonists. Can I use that word? Worse colonists? Like the, the right. I, I, all right. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Um, Tenskwatawa was armed for the British, but this is where he also makes some mistakes. During this time, he's feeling pretty important, uh, especially with Tecumseh gone, not like kind of like helping him orchestrate what's going on in Prophetstown. And he goes on these things called basically like witch hunts. And he's basically having his, his, his men hunt down any peaceful quote-unquote chiefs any chiefs that are seeking peace with the united states they're he's basically calling them witches and they're going on these witch hunts to uh to basically alienate these individuals william henry harrison of course has spies and whatnot and he wants to push the prophet um to make more mistakes without tecumseh there on november 6th of 1811 william henry harrison marches 1000 troops out to prophet's town 1,000 troops he marches out to Prophetstown. This is clearly a show of aggression by the United States. Tenskwatawa, is, he also has spies, and he knows it's coming. He has been clearly instructed by Tecumseh, do not engage in any military uh, endeavors while I'm gone. But Tenskwatawa ignores this. He marches 600 warriors, excuse me, marches the wrong word. That is not the type of warfare that most indigenous communities engage in. They, he and 600 warriors launch a surprise attack against these thousand troops at their encampment. 
The soldiers, the U.S. soldiers, do hold their ground for about two hours, and this made the prophet's leadership come into question because the warriors, essentially, the prophet said, "Look, like you're going to be immune to their bullets. Like it's it, we're going to take this. Like the, the the master of life is on our side." But when the master of life did not come through for the prophet or his people, um, and they were not bulletproof, clearly, um, because the, the master of life make- doesn't come through very often. It's kind of interesting. For, like, any culture, yeah, like God, exactly. Yahweh, Zeus, Poseidon, Krishna, very rarely. <laughs> Poseidon. Very rarely, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. Poseidon can turn people into, like, whatever. I don't know. They can fall in love with cows and whatever. Is that? Yeah, that's the Theseus. Yeah, that's Theseus. All right, whatever. No, no, no more Greek mythology. Let's keep going. All right, back to the story. Anyway, the prophet's warriors bolt. They they realize, look, man, we're not bulletproof, and these soldiers, for whatever reason, are not backing off. So we're going to leave. The prophet says that technically this battle, the Battle of Tippecanoe, was started by Harrison just marching 1,000 troops out to Prophetstown. That is the aggressor. Obviously, the Americans say it technically the attack, however, was started by Tenskwatawa. So both sides are like finger pointing, blaming each other as to who started this battle of Tippecanoe. Um, the prophet and others go on to say that it wasn't his fault that some other more radical indigenous people led by another man named Ho-Chunk. He is uh, he's Winnebago. His militants were the ones that started the fight, not the prophet, and he couldn't be controlled. So basically, there's just a lot of finger pointing here at the Battle of Tippecanoe. Harrison knew Tecumseh was gone, though. So why, mar- why not? Why would you march a thousand troops out to Prophetstown if you weren't intending to fight? Like you could just like march out there with like some emissaries and a couple of gift baskets if all you want to do is talk. But you marched mm-hmm. out there with troops. Yeah, you clearly had specific intentions. Another source on this um, comes from the uh, the warrior uh, Shaboni, and he said that the battle, the, I, and I quote, the battle of Tippecanoe was the work of white men who came from Canada and urged us to make war. So now this warrior is saying it's not the prophet, it's not uh, Harrison, it's the British that wanted us to fight. That like That's essentially what he's saying. They're the ones that told us, hey, fight, fight for your land or you're never going to have it again. Um, the next day, the next day after, after, uh, the refugees flee Prophetstown, because those thousand troops are still there, more or less, I, there were definitely casualties on both sides, but yes, for the most part, there's a lot of troops there. Prophetstown is burned, looted, and all corpses were mutilated and graves were dug up and strewn about. Now, fine for you military rah-rah USA listeners out there that like, fine, you're going to take the town. Got that. For a military strategy, fine. I'm letting that pass. Why mutilate dead bodies and dig up graves? That's going, that is not military strategy. That is not right. That is not ethical in terms of warfare or combat. Why do that? That's the level up that we're talking about. This is the United States ethic that I want to draw into critical inquiry. Fine. War is war. People win. People lose. I'm letting that go for the time being. But this level up, the mutilation of dead corpses both on the genitals and the scalps specifically. You'll remember from prior episodes that the scalps, Americans actually got paid for bringing back scalps. Um, Again, we usually attribute scalping to indigenous people. Nope, it was the British and then the Americans that did that first. And then dig up graves and desecrate uh, holy sites. What's that about? I mean, it's just a demonstration of their complete violation of their entire way of life and of their humanity. And it's a fear tactic for any future 
people that think they might want to resist. This is, I mean, this is insinuating like, I, I, yeah, that yeah, this is dehumanization. These are tactics meant to uh, uh, cultivate feeding, feelings of terror. This is, this is despicable. And here's the other thing, listeners, as we go through Myth is America, which may take us years to get through all of American history, who knows? But what, regardless, this is an action that is not unique to indigenous communities. We're going to see this in places like My Lai in Vietnam. We're going to see this in places, oh shoot, just we're going to come up on this one real quick, in Sand Creek, Colorado in 1864 and 1865. We're going to see these actions. We're going to see this in Monterey, Mexico of all places. We don't learn much about the Mexican-American War, but we're going to see it there. We're going to see this over and over again, these U.S. forces not just winning battles, but then going on to desecrate everything about these peoples, these cultures that they have invaded. It becomes a hallmark of strategy. Tecumseh, hearing upon this, obviously he's well-connected, even, you know, even in the 1800s. He is furious. He's furious at the whole situation. He's furious at his brother. He's furious at, um, uh, obviously, William Henry Harrison. Um, he's, he's furious and heartbroken. He really is. He works so hard to basically uh, create, with his brother, to create Prophetstown. And he had been working for about a year trying to recruit various warriors to form this resistance. And basically, because of the poor choices of everybody involved at Tippy Canoe, all of this, his whole, all of his work basically just fell, fell on his lap. This occurrence merges into a new war that most uh, U.S. listeners are aware of, although very rarely taught much about, but at least we're, they're taught of it, the War of 1812. It is a boring-ass war. Uh, it really is. I, maybe that's the reason most Americans aren't taught about it, or maybe they're not taught about it because of the, the, the Native American side of things. But yes, it is not the most exciting of wars, and I, I'm willing to, to, to relent and say mostly because the war is kind of boring. A any thoughts on the War of 1812, Nick? No thoughts whatsoever. Okay. Anyway, the indigenous enter into this war for obvious reasons, but why would the British, why are the British now, quote unquote, invading? Um, some say this is the last time any foreign entity invaded the United States, whatever. What, what, what's the British beef now with the Americans? They can't still be all hurt about the war for independence, can they? Not really, actually. One of the things that was taking place at this time, and we talked about this in, in prior episodes that were more politically based or economically based, there were trade restrictions um, by the British that impeded U.S. trade with France. Well, obviously, England is try going to try and impede tra trade with the United States because France is has been their enemy for, at this point, centuries. And this France, this post-revolutionary France, is super aggressive with their war on tyranny and then eventually their Napoleonic wars. They don't want to help them economically at all because France is literally trying to take over Europe, in, depending on your perspective. Uh, they would say they're not trying to take, on, take over Europe. They're trying to liberate Europe. But regardless, if you're not French, you think France is trying to take over Europe. Further, the British are impressing U.S. sailors into the Royal Navy. This is clear, and this the British have to be blamed for. They're just, they're taking another country, a country they recognized back in the Treaty of Paris in, in 1783. They're taking their sailors and basically putting them into the Royal Navy to fight in places like the Caribbean. British also supported, uh, obviously, indigenous heroes. This upset the United States. The United States was well aware that the British were supporting people like Tecumseh or Tenskwatawa or before them, Joseph Brandt. And often forgotten, often forgotten, is the United States low-key was trying to annex Canada. 
They thought if they won this war handily enough that they are going to have Canada and its major, major uh, uh, trade centers like Quebec City and Montreal. Um, and to lesser extents, because they weren't as big, Ottawa, Toronto, etc. Um, in short, the Napoleonic Wars in Europe um, have most of the British forces occupied. This is important. So when the war breaks out, England can't really fight full force here in North America because, well, they're fighting in Europe against the strength of the French forces. Um, Britain does adopt more of a defensive strategy in the war for 1812, even though everyone knows they do burn Washington City, which is rather aggressive. But for the most part, they adopt a defensive strategy, basically trying to defend either Canadian or Caribbean holdings. It's called Mr. Madison's War because James Madison's still president. And it's a rather unpopular war, even among Americans, especially on the East Coast. Why would East Coast Americans kind of hate the War of 1812, Nick? Because they don't care about what's going on in the other parts of the whatever. I was going to say frontier again, but they don't care. Yeah, They're if you're interested a, in making money, and that's what they do. Yeah, if you're a rich New England planter or planter, excuse me, rich New England banker or land speculator or merchant or whatever, you don't care about the plight of poor mostly immigrant colonists out west because that's what they were scots irish or german or quaker or whatever you don't care about them you don't even like them you don't care it's about me so even though even other americans are not important enough for you to care about you only care about making money in new england or if you're a rich virginia planter you care about potential slave revolts and making a lot of cotton or sugar or whatever like you have again this is the this is the false narrative of American unity or celebratism. Like, that's what this is. Most of them don't care about this war. Again, I do not side with the U.S. on this aggressive war against the indigenous people. But let's pretend for just a second I had a patriotic bone in my body. If you are Amer you would want to support the helping of your other colonial brothers or sisters on the West. You would want that. But they didn't. They didn't want that. Well, it also shows the lack of like nationalism and patriotism that existed at the time compared to what exists like now as an example. Right. As far as Tecumseh, because this episode's really about him regarding this war, he does engage in some of the big battles at the time. The big one being the siege of Detroit, literally like Detroit, our Detroit. He joined Major British Major General Sir Isaac Brock. So he joins his forces join up with British forces. And they siege Detroit, and they win. They force Detroit's end, uh, surrender on August of 1812, um, which is how did he do it? It was his strategy of deception, not the British, but the Native American strategy of deception that won the day. What they would do is hide in the woods outside of Detroit, and they would continue to march warriors and soldiers in and out of the woods and then go back and hide in the woods. So it made their forces look about two to three times bigger than they actually had. So they would like circle or they keep circling around the same troops and again this is the 1800s you don't know any better so you're just seeing more and more troops show up outside and on different parts and there it basically looks like all of detroit is surrounded and detroit freaks out and surrenders it's actually super super good strategy and a rather more peaceful way to win a battle than what would be coming later tecumseh's strategy impressed the british so much that they made him a brigadier general in the british military um, again, not the first time a Native American ended up having a cool title in the British military. Joseph Brandt uh, had a title bestowed upon him earlier as well. 
Unfortunately, Detroit ends up back in American hands in 1813 after Commodore Perry's victory on Lake Erie, kind of a naval battle. Yes, that Commodore Perry, for listeners at home that know, he's eventually the dude that shows up in Japan of all places and kind of like, hey, knock, knock, let us in. Um, referencing the History of Japan video that I'm sure everybody's watched because it is funny. Um, anyway, that Commodore Perry, he's the one that shows up and, and, and wins this uh, Detroit back for the Americans. Another battle is called the Siege of Fort Meigs. On 1813, 1,000 British warriors and 1.2,000 warriors led by uh, Tecumseh and uh, the Wyandot leader named Roundhead attacked are attacked in Ohio. There are heavy U.S. casualties. Again, even though they now know about indigenous guerrilla warfare, they're not. The U.S. is actually kind of weirdly ill-equipped to deal with it in some cases. But they do hold the fort. Major General Proctor, a British major general, and Tecumseh begin to disagree on the treatment of prisoners, U.S. prisoners that they have captured. So essentially, Tecumseh says, look, man, like we've got these prisoners. And yes, I'm no big fan of the Americans, but you cannot treat them the way you're treating them, homie. And so Proctor says, well, they're prisoners of war. And who cares? I've got to worry about my own troops and feed them and clothe them and whatever. And Tecumseh's like, dude, what's going on here? And eventually Proctor and Tecumseh, like they, they stop seeing eye to eye on certain things. This culminates in the, the apex of our story. The Battle of the Thames, or the Thames, depending on, I guess, your pronunciation. The Thames in England. It's not the one in England, but yes. The Battle of the Thames, or the Battle of the Thames. 1813, Proctor and Tecumseh's dispute boils over to having, like, disparate tactics and goals at this battle. They are clearly different. Proctor's forces failed to appear where they were supposed to, where they had agreed to meet Tecumseh's forces at Chatham, all the way up in Canada. He had promised Tecumseh his soldiers would be there. He does not show up. So Tecumseh's forces, who are going to make a stand there, are forced to retreat to Moravian Town. U.S. attacks, uh, U.S. ends up attacking his poor defenses because he didn't have time to set up anything there because he didn't plan on being there. And at this attack, Tecumseh is shot in the chest and he dies. Everyone, I mean everyone and their brother who was in the American military at the time, and even some people that weren't even at that battle, claimed to be the one to kill Tecumseh. Everyone. <laughs> Everyone claimed to be the one that actually shot Tecumseh, so we have no idea who really shot him. You, again, listeners, you can look it up, Google it, whatever. You'll see different stories from different sides that are really compelling, but it is somewhat of, I guess, a mystery. Here's a good quote from the time. Our lives are in the hands of the Great Spirit. We're determined to defend our lands, and if it be his will, we wish to leave our bones upon them. Essentially, that's Tecumseh essentially saying, like, man, this is fate, and this is where I'm meant to be. Like, this is, I, I died doing what I deserve, or uh, what I should have been doing. His legacy, I, I, I can't even explain his legacy. In terms of indigenous uh, uh, legacy, he is the symbol, the symbol of indigenous freedom fighting and revolutionary uh, tactics against the United States. He is the symbol. Like Joseph Brandt's pretty big, Pontiac's pretty big, uh, Medicom or King Philip's pretty big, and and later leaders that we have not talked about uh, yet, like uh, Geronimo or Crazy Horse. He, I don't know if he can compete with Crazy Horse, but Tecumseh's like right up there in terms uh ooh, Tupac Amaru down in like Peru he's up there with like these just massive resistance um um indigenous resistance symbols any thoughts Nick and the symbolism of Tecumseh I mean here's the embarrassing part too like 
before I let Nick talk, I, he's his name is even adopted by like leaders like William Tecumseh Sherman. Like, like ah, it's, it, that's his legacy. I, there's streets named after him everywhere. I mean, this is how we remember the guy. God, yeah, you threw me off with the William Sherman bullshit, but yeah. yeah. Um, William no, Sherman think... is a noted Native American killer, and he got that middle name. Like that, Seriously, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, like you said, his legacy is incredibly important for resistance to the white man in the indigenous societies. Um, and I think it just goes to like the importance of this revolutionary narrative and sort of the revolutionary hero and the importance that that plays in crafting that story. And we've talked about that extensively, I think, both on Revolution and Ideology and in the Myth is America series. Right. Even though Tecumseh is gone, the Creek Wars continue in the South. Tecumseh's allies down in the South, remember the Red Sticks, the Red Stick faction of the Creeks, they keep fighting. The Battle of Burnt Corn between the Red Sticks and the United States troops results in Mississippi and Georgia militias targeting Creek villages. I want to stress this. One more time, we brought it up in prior episodes um, um, regarding like expansion originally into the Ohio Valley, but the Mississippi and Georgia militias stop engaging um, the Red Stick warriors, and rather than engaging them, because that's not going well, they go and find the women, children, and old people in villages and start massacring them rather than engage in mano a mano, manly-like combat that we're all taught like these militias are founded upon. No, they take the cowardly route and go target the non-combatants. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's completely ridiculous. It's clearly not taught in our the traditional narrative. 4,000 Red Stick warriors and their adopted runaway slaves run to these villages to protect them. Pause. Most Americans are also never taught about this. Uh, we have brought it up in prior episodes, but countless runaway slaves sought refuge in places like people are familiar with the Caribbean or Canada or made their all, way all the way back to Europe. Um, but most of them that were able to successfully leave found their way into First Nations, especially in the South. So much so, and I might have already brought it up, that an entire nation known as the Black Seminole came into being, which is all former runaway slaves that were adopted into the Seminole Nation of Indigenous Peoples. Well, the Seminole weren't the only ones. The Creek would often be the ones helping runaway slaves get to Spanish Florida. Well, and here's some of those runaway slaves. They go to help the indigenous villages and communities that had saved them from the horrors of American slavery. What do you think of that, Nick? Yeah, like you said, often not taught in the traditional history. I want to talk about why it's not taught real briefly, because I, we'll talk about it in the future as well. But this is a, a passion project for me. This is, again, divide and rule strategy that actually has a legacy today. Various different peoples of color uh, all have various like different plights that they're facing because of systemic racism, whether we're talking indigenous people, African-Americans, uh, Latinos, whatever. Here's the thing. What the United States has been able to do by erasing or subjugating this history is to try and erase it from collective memory that all oppressed peoples at times used to work together to challenge the system in power. And by ignoring this, we are ignoring the shared oppression that all of these different peoples felt, but not just that oppression, the shared resistance that they fought in to achieve their goals. Yeah, that I think is that's incredibly important. Like you're, you're absolutely right that it creates this sort of 
each of these subjugated populations have their own individual story of oppression. And that's too to, true to an extent, but what's intentionally crafted by from the white perspective, let's just call it what it is, is that they're, like, like you said, they, they don't have this shared collective story of oppression, which is absolutely the case. Because I think it somehow makes the white oppression seem, quote unquote, better if we don't tell it of the story that they were oppressing every single other population at the same time and that there were the they came together to resist their oppression, their extermination. It, I think it's in, a much different story if we leave that part out. And it individualizes it. It individualizes it for the oppressed. And moreover, like I said, it's not just about like the history in this case people. It's about like the here and now. If we all think about our own, it becomes like an oppression Olympics. Whose people were oppressed the most? And then we can't get along on this topic or this topic or whatever. Like that's what this becomes. I mean, even an, an example we'll do in a way future episode, but like Fred Hampton is like a great example. The great Black Panther leader who at the age of 21 was executed by the FBI in his bed. But one of the great like fears of the FBI leader at the time, um, Hoover, was that he was one of the first First, at least during the civil rights period, to try and bring, he called it the Rainbow Coalition, bring together all oppressed people to resist systemic inequality. And that's why he's the one that had to be martyred in this case by the FBI. It's so, the the uh, uh, system is so scared of a united front. It, it's, it's clear. And yeah, the FBI documents, right, even refer to him as the black savior. Yeah, it's 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 a great example. Anyway, all right, we're, we're, we'll move forward. We'll get back into the history here. On August 30th of 1813, uh, the leader Red, the leaders Red Eagle and Peter McQueen, those names are correct. Peter clearly adopted, assimilated a little bit by adopting the name. He, he was of mixed heritage. They attacked Fort Mims, and it resulted in the death of 400 settlers. This is important because now you could argue that it is the indigenous peoples that are killing just non-combatants or whatever, when really it's Fort Mims. It's a fort. It is a military target, and yet 400 settlers do die there. This is important because once that happens, it becomes the rallying call to divert all types of resources into the American South and basically obliterate the Red Sticks. Um Again, it's clear that this strategy would be used over and over again in U.S. military history. Um, General John Floyd ends up responding. This is American, responds at the Battle of Atassi, and he goes on to kill 200 Creek on their own holy ground. Um, and some Creek, some Creek that had assimilated end up being his scouts to help him find these people. I don't even want to spend time here trying to understand what it's like living through the apocalypse and why one might choose to help the colonist or when the aliens come, why I might choose to help the no. Um <laughs> But like, I, you know what? I don't even know. I, any thoughts? Why might some Creek scout out their own people for General John Floyd to eventually go massacre? I, I, I just, I, I don't know. I mean, we've talked about this super briefly before. I don't know in what episode, but how... Any type of response to an apocalypse, right? Any people could choose to respond in a variety of different ways, you know, and trying to put place blame or dissect why or et cetera is like almost impossible to do, like impossible to do retroactively. Yeah, Tecumseh's legacy is 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 at least the immediate legacy here, even though he's symbolic is is still some of it is 
we could see some of it based on the factionalism that had been created by the colonists. And that's part of Tecumseh's legacy that he was trying to overcome and never fully was able to. And we're seeing it here, this factionalism. And then during this time, we're introduced to the most famous ethnic cleanser in American history. And this is not hyperbole. We look at the definition of ethnic cleansing and the Trail of Tears fits every like description of ethnic cleansing. Andrew Jackson, this is where he begins to make a name for himself long before he is president. At this point in time, he comes into the story as the major as a major general general in Tennessee, and he has 5,000 troops with him. Originally, and Nick is going to have a field day with this. I don't know that he knew this about good old Andy, but he is originally a land speculator, and that's his vested stake in ethnic cleansing thoughts. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. Like we've, I think we've talked about land speculation as much as we possibly can and how such a rich history in the domination of the American territories it plays and exploitation and oppression and genocide and so on. Needless to say, Andrew Jackson's private interest is going to inform his public interest, which again, you can never divorce the two. You can't divorce the two. As much as Americans say you can, you cannot divorce the two. He is going to do whatever it takes with his power now to make sure that he personally profits. He is renowned even at the time for his immense brutality in battles such as the Battle of Talladega and the Battle of Talashachi. I can never pronounce that one. Talashachi. Hachi, Talasachi. Um, in 1814, Andrew Jackson's forces were boosted with a draft. Cue another issue right here. His forces are cued or boosted with a draft and um, the U.S. and uh, influx of U.S. soldiers. So again, he's, he's, he's Major General, General Tennessee Militia, then U.S. He gets an influx of soldiers, some of them against their will, and he goes on to Horseshoe Bend. He kills 800 of the 1,000 Creeks he runs into with the help of Cherokee scouts now. Another quote from the time, this, this, this comes from, or well, actually, this is not from the time. This is from An Indigenous People's History of the United States, which is an amazing book written by Ortiz. She, this is her quote, she says, Troops fashioned reins for their horses' bridles from the skin stripped from the Muscogee bodies. I will repeat that one more time in more plain language, so it's a paraphrase. Andrew Jackson's troops would skin Native American bodies and create horse bridles out of them. What do you think of that, Nick? Just one more example of the lengthy dehumanization and just mutilation and complete disrespect for indigenous bodies by the colonizers. On August 9th of 1814, uh, they're forced to sign the Treaty of Fort Jackson. Georgia and Alabama, essentially what we know as Georgia and Alabama, are formally ceded um, to the Americans. And they also force the Creek to sign like non-trade agreements. That basically, they're saying like, you're going to give us this land and you're no longer allowed to treat trade with the Spanish or the British. That's forced dependency. The shocked, the shocked, and I'm using this word intentionally, the shocked Cherokee, Choctaw, Chickasaw, and assimilated Creek leaders um, thought that they had gotten in enough with the whites. This is important. They, they, this treaty, the Treaty of Fort Jackson, is a shock to all of the five civilized tribes, to be blunt. They thought that they had assimilated enough or had promoted peace enough or had worked with them enough. I mean, they even worked as scouts 
to hurt other indigenous people. And yet, and yet, this treaty absolutely destroys them, destroys their economy, absolutely destroys their economy. They too would end up cleansed from the land. Enough is never enough. Andrew Jackson goes on to say the reason he, 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 because people called him out on this at the time. Other Americans were like, look, man, some of these Creek and some of these Cherokee, like they were working with us. Like, why are you doing this to them? And Andrew Jackson had this to say, we bleed our enemies in such cases to give them their senses. The British Ave arrived far too late with the Admiral Cochrane. It was too little, too late. And eventually the entire Gulf Coast falls. Um, the rest of the boring war of 1812 kind of wraps up rather succinctly after the battle of the Thames where Thames where uh, Tecumseh died, the U S went on to invade Canada and lost resoundingly. Uh, the British forces in Canada whipped up on the Americans. We don't usually talk about that part about the war, but regardless that ends at Lundy's lane in 1814, the Royal Navy goes on to blockade U S ports, uh, on the East coast cutting on and in the South cutting off trade and allowing the British to raid the coast at will. Again, the United States still didn't have that strong a Navy, even though they knew they kind of needed one, especially after the American war for independence, especially after Hamiltonian economics that we've already talked about. They still didn't have one. One raid, obviously the most famous one went on to burn the capital, Washington city, after the death of Tecumseh, though, the British determined merely to defend Canada. They no longer wanted to help the indigenous people. They gave half-hearted attempts to help like the Red Sticks in the South. Um, further, another colonial power in Florida, the Spanish, they're still holding on for dear life down there. Their ineptitude at battles like at Pensacola eventually turned the tide for the Native Americans um, to basically a loss. The most famous battle that wraps this thing up is the Battle of New Orleans, which took place in January 8th of uh, 1815. Of course, Jackson becomes a hero here. It was basically the nail in the coffin. Unlikely, The unlikely U.S. defense of New Orleans was seen as divine providence by Americans, and it becomes one of the most iconic battles of the war, further embellishing the early thoughts on what manifest destiny might be. Basically, they're saying that it is God's God shone down on us and protected us at New Orleans, and so we have a right to everything. Nationalism is formed as a stronger ideology after the Battle of, of New Orleans. We have entire episodes on what nationalism is, so feel free to go check those out on our podcast or YouTube channel. Not going to do it now. Andrew Jackson, like I said, becomes such a hero. Anyone looks at a picture of New Orleans, you can see the big-ass statue of him down there. Like, he's there, New Orleans. He gains further genocidal fame um, and even the presidency uh, later on with his Seminole Wars and then eventually the Trail of Tears. Even before that, though, England was kind of done. The Pol Napoleonic Wars were over and trade issues had made them irrelevant. Basically, trade issues had been made irrelevant by various treaties with the Americans that were going on on the side. And so England basically stopped fighting and the war winds down. The Treaty of Ghent is signed in 1814 and really nothing changes for the colonial or imperial powers. But here's the key, the lesson for today. While nothing really changes, not a lot of territory or anything changes hands between the British or the Americans or the Spanish. They eventually have to buy Florida, but whatever. Nothing really changes hands there. But as is customary in every treaty we've talked about between European or colonial powers or American powers now, who's left out, Nick? The indigenous people whose land they're on. And dividing up and all of that. So, I mean, that's essentially like the brief history, super brief history of Tecumseh and, it, and his emergence as a revolutionary hero, a fallen revolutionary hero, an icon, a symbol, and how that worked within the colonial era of the War of 1812. What are your like kind of concluding thoughts on this history? This like, I mean, there's got to be some thoughts that you have 
that we can tie back to myth is America, the themes we talked about, heroes we don't talk about, or themes in American history that are erased or subjugated. What are your thoughts, Nick? As a sociologist, I've told you the story. The episode's a little long, but who cares? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I want to use this as an opportunity to talk about really like it's like a pandemic uh, that we experience all the time. And I know we both experience it because we've been in the same room together in a classroom or in a meeting when this happens. And it's always from a white dude. And we're always talking about this topic of colonization and the indigenous and like, et cetera. And the comment is always, why didn't they fight back? Bro, there is such a rich history of indigenous people fighting back, fighting for their land, violently, violent resistance. And it, I just cannot stress how much it drives me crazy when people say that if they cared about their land so much, or if they like, if like, it couldn't have been that bad. They, why didn't they fight back? Clearly they did. And the fact that these people don't know that it just reflects how much this history is completely erased and completely subjugated and completely overlooked when we're telling this sort of the myth of this period of American history. And this episode, this history that you've just given us, like you said, all too briefly, even is just an example of the rich history of resistance that no one just laid down and let their entire civilization and their entire way of life be completely eradicated from the face of the earth. They fucking fought back. Okay. I, 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 the, the story's done. I, I don't have anything else. You want to take us home, Nick? I mean, like I said, I mean, this is just more myth is America. Our next episode will focus a little bit on the co colonial context around what we just talked about from basically Jefferson through Monroe. Uh, but we're not doing that now. That's, that deserves all of its own time. So what do you got, Nick? Yep. Catch us online, revolutionandideology.com. Like we've mentioned a couple of times in this episode, we also have a YouTube channel. Just search Revolution and Ideology, where we post all of our episodes and a lot of other videos that we use, like in our online courses and just other random topics that we talk about. So you can subscribe to us there. Um, basically, what we really, if you enjoy uh, what we do, just suggest, uh, talk to your friends about us and suggest us to them. Leave us a review on whatever podcast app you're listening to this on or make a comment on the YouTube video to help us get more watches if you're watching this on YouTube. That's it. I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later.